Hello everyone. Do you like reading? Do you like walking? Do you like thinking about your life? Then we have got something for you. Our Common Ground Pilgrimages are going to be announcing our slate of fall and winter 2020 pilgrimages on March 2nd. So if you sign up for our newsletter at readingandwalkingwith.com, you will be the first to know when registration launches and only people on our newsletter will get 30 minutes early registration access and it's first come first serve. So signing up first might mean the difference between getting a spot or not. There's less than 20 spots on each pilgrimage and one of them might be involving me and a book that we all love. So you're talking about you leading a pilgrimage with he's just not that into you? A hundred percent, yeah. <laughs> oh my God, I'm there. So that's readingandwalkingwith.com. Sign up to the newsletter. Be the first to know about our pilgrimages this year. Chapter 16, The Chamber of Secrets. All those times we were in that bathroom, and she was just three toilets away, said Ron bitterly at breakfast the next day. And we could have asked her, and now it had been hard enough trying to look for spiders, escaping their teachers long enough to sneak. I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And I'm Casper Takile. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. I remember my wedding day like it was yesterday. I was standing at the front of the congregation, surrounded by friends and family, with beautiful music around me and looking into the eyes of my now husband and thinking how lucky I was that I could do this thing, that I could get married to a man who I love. Because for so many years, as we all know, this kind of love was not blessed in a church, was not sanctioned by the state, would not invite family and friends to come around and bless it. And yet, my wedding was. And the only reason why that's the case is I was born in 1986. There are decades, hundreds of years that have passed where people haven't been given that opportunity. And the only reason why I have it is because of luck, really. You know, I obviously went out there and dated and met the man that I love. But the structural pieces that allow me to wear a wedding ring today have nothing to do with me. And the only reason I can explain that is through this very theological term that we call grace. You know, the idea that you're given something, not because you've earned it, just because. And that theme of grace, as we read this chapter in the Chamber of Secrets, I'm looking for the characters who receive gifts without earning them, where something good happens to them for no reason, just that it happens. And it's a complicated time that I've never really gotten used to, and I, I want to learn more about it together, Vanessa. So I'm, I'm excited to dig into this theme of grace. Casper, when we decided to read this chapter through the theme of grace, it really struck me that this is not a word in my daily vernacular. And so I reached out to a friend who's a Christian theologian, and I said, tell me what grace is. And he wrote back, unmerited. The idea that grace is the a priori things that exist, that we didn't deserve, we did nothing to work for, but that help us live our lives. Yeah, it's so true. It's not a word I use a lot. I'm a little hesitant to explore it because I don't want to get it wrong, but I'm excited to learn together. Yeah, I'm nervous too, but I'm not nervous about my 30-second recap. So should we do that first? Well, fine, especially because you're going first. Yeah. So you ready? No. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Don't I look ready? Three, two, one, go. 
Harry and Ron feel like they have to get to Moaning Myrtle's bathroom. They're trying to get there, and Professor McGonagall's like, where are you guys going? And they're like, oh, we're going to go visit Hermione. And they had just found out, by the way, that they still have to do exams and that um, Hermione's going to get unfrozen soon. And so they have to fake visit Hermione, and then it turns out, of course, that Hermione has all the answers in the palm of her hand. So they – and everything is in the, the pipes. And so they decide to go to Moaning Myrtle's bathroom, and then the exams get canceled, and Gilderoy Lockhart is like, I can save everything. And they're like, yeah, if you can, you better help us get into the Chamber of Secrets. I love that Hermione is frozen. Like, all she needs is to be put into a microwave and just, like, <laughs> just heat her up for a second. She'll be right out. <laughs> Defrosted. <laughs> Are you ready to embarrass yourself? Bring it on. On your mark. Get set. Go. So Ron and Harry go to visit Hermione and they discover wrapped in her hand is this piece of paper, which is a description of a basilisk. And it all makes sense, right? Scared of roosters. It scares spiders. Oh, my God, it all makes sense. It, and it's been going through the tubes. And then she's written pipes. And so, like, that's why Harry's like, I'm not going crazy. It's it's just a big snake in the wall. Um, and then um, they go and find Lockhart. And all the teachers are like, yeah, you should go, Lockhart. And so they get Lockhart and he's going to leave. But then um, he backfires on himself and then they take him with him and they go to the Chamber of Secrets. I can't tell if that was good or not. It was amazing. Okay. Democracy will speak for once. Please vote. Harry Potter. Secretext.com. So, Vanessa, we're discovering both a little bit what this word grace means and where we've seen it in the text. So can you point to a place where it really struck you? Yes. So a moment in the first few pages of the chapter that strikes me as potentially being about grace is when Professor McGonagall makes the announcement that there will still be exams. And everybody starts groaning like, oh, we weren't expecting exams and we weren't studying because the castle's in disarray. And McGonagall says, the whole reason we've kept the school open is to maintain this sense of normalcy. And I think the pre-existing grace upon these kids is that they have access to one of the best wizarding educations out there. And so she is trying to maintain that grace even in the face of danger. Yeah. I mean, the thing that really strikes me is that, you know, in some way, there's grace that these children have wizarding, witching powers in the first place. They have been given this gift, which... They need to learn how to use. And I think absolutely McGonagall is trying to keep the gift of the school open. We never learn about fees or any of the like financial structures of Hogwarts, but I can imagine that they will take any child with wizarding ability because that's what they're there for. It's like a gift to the whole magical world that if you are a child and, and you have these capacities that you are welcome here. And I think that's why Hogwarts means so much to so many of us. So, yeah, I completely agree with you. I think McGonagall, she is doing everything she can to protect the gift that this institution is because she knows how valuable it is. Like, without this, where are these kids going to go? How are they going to learn? How can they become productive, generous agents out in the world? I think she sees this, yeah, Hogwarts as grace is necessary for the flourishing of these children. What's interesting also, based on what you said, is that it's in Chamber of Secrets that we're really reminded of the history of the school, in which case we're invited to remember a time before which Hogwarts existed. So I feel like McGonagall might be keenly aware in this moment of like, there was a time when you could not come to a wizarding school. There was a time in which we were persecuted, you know, and we are now in this moment of history. And so I am going to do everything I can to keep this school open. And that's so resonant for me. 
in the story that I told, there are these generations of activists who look at us younger people and even generation below me now and say, like, you don't know how lucky you are and will also be much more skeptical of the institutions that we're buying into that we now have access to. And so... I find that parallel deeply moving because even if she didn't experience that time herself, she's a scholar, she knows the history, and she's passionate about keeping this opportunity alive because she knows what happens if it's not there anymore. So I think that McGonagall might be embodying grace in this moment because our friend, Professor Matt Potts, who is the Christian theologian we reached out to to help us with this episode, said that Grace leads to gratitude and gratitude leads to responsibility. And that is grace embodied, grace enacted. And McGonagall is aware of all of the levels of grace, the health of the children in the room, the structures of Hogwarts, the people who had to build Hogwarts, the people who are working every day. She is aware of all of the grace that is embodied in the kids in this classroom, which leads her to the sense of responsibility, which means that I have to give exams. I have to honor that grace through action, and this is how I'm going to do it. And that's where we see the difference between McGonagall, right, a healthy, mature adult, and 12-year-old children, because her response is, yes, here is grace. I am grateful, and I have a responsibility. The kids are like, sure, there's grace. That's nice. But like, I'm not sure I'm grateful, and I definitely don't want to be responsible. And I think when we look at the history of theology, there are different responses to grace, and not everyone chooses that grace, gratitude, responsibility line. And that can turn nasty when people say, well, grace is only for some people, but not for other people, right? Like you're excluded. And so she's saying, no, grace is for everyone. But the kids are like, I don't want to accept it right now. Thanks. I want an extra free period. Well, and I think we see that in Lockhart, too. So in this chapter, we find out the extent to which Lockhart is confirming every suspicion we had about him and is a total fraud. Right. And if he had gratitude for the grace of what he had, then he would be living a different life. He would be grateful that he's healthy and handsome and strong. And great at memory charms. Right. And great at memory charms. There are all sorts of professions that I'm sure he would be great at. But instead of honoring the grace in his life, there was no gratitude, which led to no sense of responsibility. I think we're shown the the logical extreme of what not honoring the grace in your life looks like. Absolutely. Vanessa, there's one small point that I want to draw our attention to in the text, which is, you know, the boys figure out that Moaning Myrtle is someone they should go and talk to, and they're on their way. They've managed to slip out of the corridor patrol, and they're on their way to go and find her, and suddenly McGonagall is there. And Harry is very quick on his feet and makes up the excuse that they wanted to go and see Hermione, and they are sure that they're going to be put in detention, right? They are breaking a really big rule right now. And McGonagall reacts in a very unexpected way and becomes teary-eyed and choked up and says, but of course, of course you should be able to go and see Hermione. Run off to the hospital wing straight away and tell Madame Pomfrey that I sent you. And what this allows is that the boys go to Hermione and find this clue which helps solve the whole mystery, right? Here is a piece of luck that has just landed in their laps, totally undeserved. Hermione's done all the hard work, and the boys are able to take that clue and turn it into action. And so here is, I guess, another little moment of grace just in terms of ultimately what will help save Ginny is that, you know, McGonagall lets them go. I mean, like, 
they the opposite of deserve it. They've just tried to be sneaky and lied to McGonagall and like taken advantage of her very sweet emotions and manipulated her. And they're only visiting Hermione for these not great reasons. But I think that there's another argument here, which is visiting someone in the hospital is always a good deed. And yeah, I feel like this validates my point from last week, which is that showing up especially in the hospital or when people are in distress matters. And it doesn't matter what selfish motivations get you there. Just standing next to someone, even if they're petrified in the hospital, is a good thing. And Madame Pomfrey knows that, right? She says to the boys, like, there is no point in talking to a petrified person. But then she lets them do it anyway. There's no point, but it's just, it's good. Well, and I think that grace doesn't happen to good people who are doing good things. I mean, that's the big challenge in in Christian history and Christian life is that people want to be seen that they are being given grace and kind of act in ways where they're like, look how holy I am. And that's the thing about it. Like, we don't control it. We don't get to choose. Like, it just happens or it doesn't happen. And that's really frustrating. So can I ask you a question now? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm going to go dark. Shocking. But my question is, what are the limits of grace? Mm. You know, all of these kids are so lucky that they're at Hogwarts and it's centuries of people have made sacrifices in order for them to be there. But I feel like the limits of grace are in this tiny body of Ginny Weasley because I'm not sure what grace she is given this year. This poor girl is 11 years old. She's been looking forward to going to Hogwarts her whole life. She's a crush on a boy. Her parents do everything that they can to set her up for success. Grace everywhere. Great. But before she even starts, she is given an object that is, we'll find out later, just infected with evil and carries it around, gets tricked by something she trusts, gets lured into doing things that goes against her values. I mean, she basically gets kidnapped in plain sight. And in this chapter, she is literally locked in a basement, which is an incredibly powerful image. We know that there are between 20 and 30 million people annually who are slaves in this world. So there are people who, like Jenny, very little grace is in their lives. And in fact, there's almost the opposite of grace in their lives. It's not even a lack of luck. There is like violence imposed upon them. And so I'm wondering, what do we do with Jenny? <laughs> That is the question. I think just looking at every news cycle or disaster, or that's when people ask, there can't be a God if, if they would let this happen, right? If, if you believe in the kind of God that controls everything, um, I don't. But it's the question we all, we're all faced with when something despicable happens, where you just can't see any positive. And what I do love in the Christian tradition is that there is a place for that in the liturgical cycle, as it were, right in the calendar of the year. In Holy Week, which is the week before Easter, there's a moment on the Thursday, the tenebrae service, as it's traditionally called, which literally means shadows or darkness, where as the service progresses, all the lights slowly, slowly go out. 
And by the end of the service, the entire church is just completely dark and everyone leaves in silence. And it's supposed to speak to this moment of despair, you know, that Jesus has when he says, why have you forsaken me? And I can imagine that's exactly what Ginny must feel like in that moment where you feel completely alone, where all the support systems that have been promised to you have failed you and you are going to die. And in this Christian story, of course, Jesus does die. So I think we need that reality. Like, you can't pretend that these things don't happen because they do. And so for me to have a sort of theological idea or belief in something that can give an easy answer to that, it's just not, it's not fair. So that's, I mean, that's one thing that I, I appreciate in that kind of Christian story. Yeah, I mean, that's right. Like, that's one of my favorite moments in Christianity, too. And that's certainly... One of my favorite theological arguments of Christianity is Christianity really grapples with suffering. And Judaism does too. And I'm sure all the religions that I don't know nearly as well do as well. You know, in in Judaism, we have Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And a huge part of what you are atoning for is your complicity in the evil of the world. You apologize to your neighbors. You apologize to God. You ask for forgiveness. You ask for forgiveness for the things that you don't even know that you didn't do. And so I I just – I don't ever feel like it's enough. And my problem sort of narratively with both Yom Kippur and Maundy Thursday is that they are so quickly followed up by days of celebration. So for Yom Kippur, you have Sukkot very shortly after where you're celebrating the harvest. And with Maundy Thursday, you have Easter Sunday, you know, just a few days later. And so that's too quick of a turn for me. And I'm more drawn to people like Johnny Cash, who for most of his adult life wore black and said, I am in mourning for all of the people who died in war, for all of the people who didn't get to learn to read, for all of the people who were unfairly in jail. And he was a good Christian and someone who really was incredibly grateful and really felt a lot of grace in his life. I appreciate those gestures of sort of eternal mourning. And so I guess in this conversation, I'm being called to appreciate the grace in my life more and then also more radically mourn for the places in which not only grace isn't touching, but whatever the opposite of grace is, is oppressing people. You know, all of the women locked in basements for whom there's the grace of the fact that they were alive. But I even wonder if that grace is diminished by their suffering. What you're saying is reminding me weirdly of Moaning Myrtle. I mean, like, she is kind of locked in a bathroom in this semi-alive, ghostly, dead state for eternity as a sad, lonely, isolated teenage girl. I mean, that doesn't feel very grace-filled to me. And she's still there. I will say that in Ginny's case, she still does have grace. Harry and Ron are going after her. Her parents have been called for her. All of the teachers are trying to get to her. So there are structures in place that are still trying to help Ginny. There's still grace in her life. Yeah, I mean, this is such a beautiful example of the kind of polarity, you know, when two things that totally opposite are both still true. And so like, yeah, there is grace. And no, there isn't grace. And like, they're both true at the same time. And I feel like this story, I mean, the whole seven books are kind of constantly pointing to that. Like, here's the trajectory of Harry. Here's the trajectory of Riddle. Both could have happened, right? And they're both true. I don't know. I just find that so complicated and so beautiful and difficult all at the same time. And yeah, 
It's time for our spiritual practice, and we're busy at work preparing a new one to introduce to everyone. But for the next two weeks, we're going to return to our very favorite Lectio Divina. It's not my favorite. I mean, I love it. An old standby. It's the best. No, it's like an apple. It's like delicious and always available, but like sometimes I want a papaya. (laughs) Havruta. (laughs) Just like, why do we have to rank them? (laughs) They're all different and delicious. Okay, here's the sentence. It was a page torn from a very old library book. Harry smoothed it out eagerly, and Ron leaned in close to read it too. So what's just happening in the text at this point? Hermione is lying in the hospital wing petrified, and Ron and Harry have just noticed that there's something in her hand, and they pull it out of her hand, and this is what it is. It's a piece of an old library book with something written on it. Correct? Correct. Ding! Let me read it again, and then we can start thinking allegorically. It was a page torn from a very old library book. Harry smoothed it out eagerly, and Ron leaned in close to read it too. So, kind of thinking allegorically, I mean, there's this very old library book, right, that has so many kind of associations. I think of the the Library of Alexandria, and I think of my grandfather's library, and the library of my dreams that one day I'll have, you know, it has just this really resonant thing. And to rip a page out of it is this very violent thing. It's, it's kind of sacrilegious, right? We feel nearly worshipful in a space like that, the dust, the darkness, the leather seats. To pull out a piece of paper from a book like that, that's... And for Hermione to do it really means something. So I guess I'm seeing those images in my head. What, what are some of the allegorical kind of themes or stories or images that came up for you. Can you read it one more time for me, please? Yeah. It was a page torn from a very old library book. Harry smoothed it out eagerly, and Ron leaned in close to read it too. So this is one of the first times that this book really feels like a traditional mystery to me. So I'm reminded of like Agatha Christie books or Boxcar Children, which were my favorite mysteries growing up, where there's a clue given. And this clue unlocks all of the sort of locks that we've been given and have been brushing up against. This is sort of a master key that is going to unlock it. And so the fact that the master key that Hermione gives them is a page from a library book, to me, it just feels like it is Hermione herself who is the key to all of this. Because like if Hermione was a symbol, she would be a book, right? And she has such reverence for library books. So it's herself that she is offering to the boys. Well, and she's holding the piece of paper just like you would hold a key. She's wrapped her fingers around it. I I love that image. The other thing that I'm thinking of is that phrase, you know, to take a leaf out of someone else's book, right? You're like, you're going to live like them for a bit or you're walking in their shoes or there's something about, you know, these kids are, are still students, right? They're learning to live like someone else. And It makes me think, like, who is Hermione wanting to be like? Like, who is her role model? Who's her mentor? And we've talked about maybe that's McGonagall to some extent. And so I love that McGonagall is the one who allows the boys to go to Hermione. And Hermione herself is is somehow taking a leaf out of McGonagall's book. There's this beautiful reciprocity in that relationship. 
It also reminds me of the Talmud, which is a copy of the Torah of the first five books of the Hebrew Bible. And then it's commentary on the sides of it. And it's this idea that the thing that we are going to study and extract meaning from stays the same. But what keeps Judaism relevant and modern is the commentary. And we have that exact thing in Hermione's book of like this old information that, you know, might have helped Harry, but it's her commentary. It's the word pipes that makes it all come together. Yeah. And, you know, all those beautiful illustrations in old manuscripts before things were printed, you know, you'd have a monk somewhere writing in a castle, copying out exactly word for word. And sometimes they would write these little things in the sides or draw funny animals or there's a way that old texts find new life through that kind of commentary and and engagement. That's beautiful. Are we ready to enter stage three? I'm always ready to think about myself. So, yes. (laughs) So, okay, I'll read it one more time. We need to think about what experience have we had that speaks to this. It was a page torn from a very old library book. Harry smoothed it out eagerly and Ron leaned in close to read it too. The thing that it reminds me of is like when I was small and we'd be read a story and we'd all kind of gather around and look at the same page And there's that lovely feeling of someone else reading to you, but you can kind of look over their shoulder and you kind of know where the story is, but you don't have to do the work. The story is coming to you. I don't know. I just remember as a kid, just that feeling closeness and Ron leaning close to read it. And, you know, we don't have to do any work because Hermione has figured it all out. She's telling us the story. What it reminds me of is when Mama, my grandmother, who I talked about in last week's episode, passed away. I don't own a lot of stuff and I don't like owning a lot of stuff, but she had a big coin purse collection. So I took a couple of her coin purses and then I took two of her old coats. And in both coats, I found ticket stubs to shows she'd gone to in like the 70s, 80s, you know, and it was like, oh, my gosh, in 1976, Mama went to see the movie Kramer versus Kramer. Who knew? You know, and it felt like such a connection to her, not like a secret that I was invading her space and like reading her old diary, but just finding these scraps of paper. And in one of the coin purses, I found an old shopping list of hers. And, you know, it was like. Of course she was buying, like, poppy seeds in bulk to make me my favorite cake, right? So it just reminds me of, like, finding those scraps of paper. And I think it's made, like, the more poignant by the fact that Hermione is petrified and she's, like, still talking to them. So it's, you know, those moments where you listen to a voicemail from someone who's passed or, you know, you find an old ticket stub. It's, like, more beautiful because it's something from someone who no longer is able to communicate with you in that way. Right. That's lovely. So, Casper, step four, what do you feel called to after doing this practice of Lectio with this quote? I always want to read more, but this really makes me want to read more, (laughs) especially books that I've loved before and I haven't picked up in a long time. And, you know, sometimes you'll do that and you pick it up and it really doesn't have the same impact. And then other times, you know, I remember opening up a particular favorite and just being drawn all the way back in both to me, who I was when I read it for the first time. And it just elevates me to a different place. And I don't make enough time to read. It's easy to get sucked into the busy trap. So I'm really feeling called to to make that time a priority. It's not luxury. It's necessary. How about you, Vanessa? This might be silly, but what? 
I feel called to. I'm a huge library user. Like, I'm at the public library three, four times a week. It's where I get my movies. It's where I get my music. It's where I get my cookbooks, like everything, let alone the novels that I read. And I'm really called to, like, thank my librarians. They make so much of my life possible. And they are the, like, movers of knowledge in this country. So I don't know. I want to write my librarians a thank you note. This week's voicemail is from Rebecca Dehovitz, who sent this in just after she'd come back from the Women's March. Hi, Vanessa and Casper. My name is Rebecca. I'm a big fan of the podcast, and I wanted to share with you a story of how your podcast has impacted my life. So I haven't been a very civically engaged person in the past, But recent events have made me want to be more involved, and so I decided to participate in the Women's March in San Francisco this past Saturday. And I'd never done anything like this before, so I was excited, but I was also pretty nervous. And so the night before, I was calming myself. I was trying to do different things to calm down, and so I thought I would try sewing, which is not something I normally do, but it was helping, and I was thinking about all the things that I would need for the march the next day, trying to be prepared, like I would need a hat and and gloves. And suddenly I realized that I could embroider something on my glove that would be encouraging to me. And at first I thought, oh, I could do an inspiring quote um, or a phrase, but I knew my sewing skills weren't that strong and probably would be better to keep it to one word. And suddenly... I found myself stitching the name Hermione into my glove. And I've always loved Hermione, but your podcast has made me see her in a new light as someone who is continually caring, determined, and courageous throughout the books. And that on many important occasions, she is the voice for what is right before anyone else speaks up. And I see myself in her and I also aspire to be like her. And so this weekend, whenever I was nervous, I would just look at that name Hermione on my glove and it made me feel brave and it encouraged me to keep fighting and keep doing what I was doing. And I knew that Hermione would want me to keep doing this and to keep fighting for women's rights and for the rights of all people who are oppressed and marginalized. And it really filled me with strength. And so I wanted to thank you for showing me that I could draw that kind of strength from from the text because I don't think I would have realized that and I don't think the word Hermione on my glove would have meant so much to me if it hadn't been for your podcast and it really did make a much better experience for me. So keep doing what you're doing and thank you very much. Rebecca, I love that voicemail. And it just occurred to me that Hermione would also knit a hat. She knits as part of the revolution. And that was such a big part of the Women's March. So Hermione is everywhere. I know that I derive a tremendous amount of strength from Hermione and from all of the heroines who I admire. And I think that just thinking more and more about using them as guiding lights can just be a tremendous source of strength, especially in difficult times. So thank you so much for your lovely voicemail. And keep fighting, Hermione Wood. Casper, now we get to bless somebody. Who would you like to bless this week? 
My blessing this week is for someone who we don't really meet in the pages of this chapter. It's the author of the book that Hermione has ripped from. You know, it's in a description of, of a basilisk. There must have been a person who went out into the world and figured out all these things about basilisks, probably at, at great danger to themselves. And for me, it's so connected to, you know, the story I shared at the beginning, that there are people who have gone before us, who have laid the groundwork and done the hard, dangerous, difficult work that allows us to live the lives we live now. And so my blessing is for those forefathers and mothers, those ancestors who allow me to live the life I live today. How about you, Vanessa? So my blessing is for Jenny Weasley, who's just an 11-year-old kid who is locked in a basement with evil embodied. And she did not deserve this fate. And yet there she is. And I want to bless her in honor of all of the people in the world who are suffering and who are having a hard time finding grace right now or for whom grace is having a hard time finding them. I'm thinking of you. We are all thinking of you. Not enough, but we will try. And in blessing Ginny Weasley, I hope to be reminding myself to fight better for you. You've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Next week, we'll read Chapter 17, The Heir of Slytherin, through the theme of heartbreak. Learn more about the spiritual practices we use on the podcast by visiting our website, harrypottersacredtext.com. And please subscribe and review on iTunes or wherever you find your podcast. And you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, and Facebook. This episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text was produced by Ariana Nettleman, Casper Turkile, and me, Vanessa Zoltan. Our social media coordinator is Jen Stark. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Boll. Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is a proud member of the Panoply Network. You can find ours and other great shows at panoply.fm. A big thank you to Rebecca Dehovitz for this week's voicemail, Rebecca and Charlie Ledley, Matt Potts, and Stephanie Paulsell. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Spiritual can be fun. Spiritual. Spiritual. <laughs> Let's get, get spiritual. Spiritual. <laughs> Okay, should I start again from the beginning?